0: Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you.
1: It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis.
0: Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together.
3: We could ask 20 people what innovation is and we get 40 different answers at least because it's not like accounting or IT or cooking. You know, it doesn't have a perceived specific definition. So I define innovation as that ability to consistently come up with new, great, and reliable ideas. And it's a short definition, but each word has meaning. So I think of a new idea as something that hasn't been done in your industry in that way before. And I think this is something that architects are fantastic at.
1: Welcome to Context and Clarity, the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Thursday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, Catherine McPhail and I, and our live audiences that are joining us from all across the internet, we have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. In this episode, we talk with Carla Johnson, author of Rethink Innovation. That's the book that we're reading this month for our Context and Clarity Book Club. Our guest today is a storyteller, a teacher, and an innovator. She's a change agent on a mission to teach 1 million people how to become innovative thinkers by 2025. She's the author of 10 books, including the bestseller that happens to be our Context and Clarity Book Club book for the month of March, RE, so that's R-E colon, Rethink Innovation, How the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes. Carla Johnson, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. First of all, thank you for being here. Thanks for joining us. We've been, like I said in the intro, we've been reading your book all month because we're going to discuss it tomorrow. The last Friday of every month is our book club discussion. So I think we probably ought to start the conversation with what inspired you to write Rethink Innovation?
3: It's um, well, and first, thanks for having me, because I know we've, we've talked before and I get all wound up, especially talking to an architecture audience. I, you know, um, I've never been a person who has wanted for an idea probably my whole life. Okay. I'm, the, I'm the youngest of five from this little little rural town, but all of my siblings are super left brain, military lawyers, engineers, thing, people like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I actually started my college degree in electrical engineering, figuring I'm good at math and science, and that's kind of what everybody else did. So that's what I did. I hated it. I I was just, I was just way too right-brained, but I've always been a good writer. And along the way in college, I got a job, um, you know, kind of a secretary admin at an architecture firm. But part of that role was writing proposals Mm -hmm. for the architecture firm. And that blend of, I love to write And I understood enough of the technical side of it from engineering. It was it was really the perfect fit for me. And so I I say that because I pull it forward. My first 10 years of my career were in the AEC industry. And then when we moved, I lived in Omaha at the time when I went to uh, after college and then and then working. I worked for my first architecture firm. I was employee number four. So I I I get the small firm and how you really do have to do everything. And then went to a mid one it's bdh architects now and then went to hdr and then when my husband and i moved to denver i went to work for uh, a telecom firm okay but my i got a master's in history and that actually was my first book my master's thesis it's on the okay. union pacific railroad stations in omaha nebraska so oh, okay. very very specific then after i worked in the uh telecom profession for a few years I wanted to go out on my own, so I went out on my own and I ended up writing corporate history for Western Union, Omaha Mm -hmm. Corps of Engineers and, and some more like that. But it was always it was always about the story and how how the dots connected for these amazing organizations over history and really how they had innovated their particular industry and then went on to write some marketing books and in 2015 i wrote co-wrote a book called experiences the seventh era of marketing about how to create story-driven experiences okay. for audiences and i had people after that book come up to me and say like i love the idea i love the framework but what i still struggle with is coming up with original ideas and i'm like for Pete's sake, it isn't that hard. It's like X, Y, Z, this is what you do. And I was going off on a bender on the phone with a friend of mine one day and he said, stop, like right there. If you can unpack what I just said and put it into a process, that's, that's what the book is. So that's what I spent five years doing is interviewing people, doing research, looking into... How our brain works to come up with ideas, all sorts of things, and to see what happens and where do people get inspiration for their ideas, and how do we move from inspiration to execution? Yeah. and to answer the question, is this something that everybody can learn? and yep. obviously the answer is yes because here's the book that <laughs> shows how to do it <laughs> yeah.
1: well that, that was one of the things that intrigued me you know I, I I love books about innovation. Where did good ideas come from is one of my favorites you, you know, but of all the all the things I've read, all the people that I've talked to, in fact, we innovation was our topic last week as well. You know, from a completely different point of view. But I don't think I've ever run across a book or you know a resource where where you systematized it. Basically, is what you've done, right? You systematized innovation, or you system systematized the creative process. Maybe is one way to say it. In rethink innovation, and so I found that really intriguing uh, that you've you've. Develop this framework, the uh, the PIP framework, <laughs> you know, to to sort of to sort of lay out and and work within in order to, as you say, become prolifically innovative.
3: Yeah, and and what I found is really I I learned this without realizing it from architects when I started to work with them, especially design architects, because I found it fascinating when they would go through the you know some of the early sketches or you know drawings or concepts of a building to talk about where their inspiration came from and and the little details. And it was just, it was the story behind what was actually going to be constructed that I, I found magical. And I think architects are incredibly smart, creative people who don't get credit for being incredibly smart and creative. I mean, they get credit for great ties and they get credit for being, you know, interesting people at dinner parties, but I don't think they get credit for this (laughs) amazing ability to really source source material for the dots, and then mm-hmm. to be able to connect all those dots in something that shows up in such a tangible, right. everyday way in our lives, in yeah. our lives. And I and yeah. I I say architects were the original design thinkers. It's just that IDEO took it and put yeah. a different name to it, and you know let people dress different right. when they showed up at client meetings, kind of thing. Yeah, but um, I mean, the design thinking is what architects have always done. and seeing how they did that to me was just fascinating fascinating
1: yeah so why do you think architects don't get credit
3: i think because it's not brought into the mainstream enough Mm -hmm. i mean when you look at architecture projects their work is done before people see the thing and so i don't think people have a connection between oh and Architected that they know an engineer did it because it's still standing. You know, most likely <laughs> they know a contractor did it because they see the people on site. But yeah. I think architects are the hidden magic behind all of this that people don't realize, unless you're a major, you know, iconic Frank Lloyd Wright or I. M. Pei or somebody like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So the way the way that we structure this show, we didn't explain this earlier, but. The way that we structure the show is on Thursday, we have you as a guest. So we have our, our special guests every week. And then we spend the rest of the week exploring different avenues, exploring different ways of attacking the theme that we'll talk about. So all week, we've been asking questions like, how do you research? Where do you uh, derive inf- uh, inspiration? Uh, what does your design or your creative process look like? And when we were talking about the design process or creative process yesterday, one of the questions that I had was, how many, you know, who of you um, do you let your clients in on? Do your clients participate in, or do your clients get to view that creative process? And and what I just heard you say is clients or or maybe the public, maybe not the clients, probably not the right way to ask this question, but the public sees this built thing, this thing that you designed. But they didn't see the process. They didn't see the pip uh, behind the scenes that led up to that point. I think that's a really intriguing, intriguing thought there because you know we think about some TV shows. There was one. Uh, somebody's going to have to remind me that TV show that was on Netflix about the the uh, the great homes or something that had the architect and the actress and the architect. They'd go to these places and the architect would would sketch out the concept. Oh yeah, and yeah. Explain What's it, it called? all. Called. I think that's. One of the few times that people would actually go, okay, that's an incredible, amazing thing, amazing house, or you know, whatever it is we're looking at, and then you have an architect actually explaining everything behind it. That is a rare opportunity.
3: I, I absolutely agree, and I think you know I, when we look at opportunities to stand out, uh, be distinctive as a firm, I think especially as a small firm, because I know I I worked at small firms that could go head to head. With mm-hmm. the bigger firms, you know, probably not a 10 person firm against a thousand person firm, but sure. they could they could definitely up level because of their ability to even think innovatively in how they delivered and, you know, back mm-hmm. office operations and, and things like that. But I think there's an, this amazing opportunity, especially for small firms to stand apart simply by bringing this veil, you know, like opening the curtains yeah. and you know, the Wizard of Oz showing the man behind the curtain, the woman behind the curtain and and what really goes on. And I remember working at HDR and we had um, just this head to head debate between a couple of the architects of one was saying we really need to be transparent with mm-hmm. um, prospects and, and customers, you know, clients, how we do the thing, because yeah. this is what really distinguishes us. And the other one was just adamant against it because he said, if we do that, all of our competitors are going to see that and take it. And then what's our, you know, what's, what's our distinctive thing. Yeah. And I always believe that by the time you have it operationalized and you're delivering it and you're talking about it, if somebody sees that and tries to replicate it, yeah. one, they're playing catch up. And it's right. not like catch up from what you did yesterday or last week. It's catch up from For probably years. at least, yeah, at yeah. least a year ago. Yeah. And so if they're trying to slide in, they're, them doing that is just going to prove how far ahead you are.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it reinforces that.
3: And and I think the other thing is that by sharing it, it shows your thought process and and your expertise. I do work with companies to develop their brand purpose Mm -hmm. as opposed to just mission and and values. And that's another way that it makes a firm really distinctive in that way. And, And I don't know, this would be, I'm curious, maybe you can drop this into the comments, how many of you are willing to be transparent about how you come up with ideas and in your design process and how you source inspiration in that, yeah. and that kind of thing? I'm curious.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. If, so, if you're listening, watching, are, are you transparent? Are you, and, and this is sort of the question that we asked, one of the questions we asked yesterday, do, are you bringing outsiders, maybe is one way to say it, are you bringing outsiders into your design process so that they can maybe participate or at least view the chaos that's <laughs> probably going on. So I mean, while while we're waiting for them to answer in the comments here, maybe we should go back to the beginning and, and just ask, what is innovation? What's innovation mean?
3: You know, and it's it's a great question because I think we could ask 20 people what innovation yeah. is and we get 40 different answers at least. Because it's not like accounting or IT or cooking, you know, It doesn't have a perceived specific definition. So I define innovation as that ability to consistently come up with new, great and reliable ideas. And it's a short definition, but each word has meaning. So I think of a new idea as something that hasn't been done in your industry in that way before. And I think this is something that architects are fantastic at when you think of them drawing on inspiration for design I'd like to use the example of McDonald's and the drive through for the, for the fast food restaurant is that they understood they needed to be able to get more cars through faster if they were going to increase revenue. And so they're saying, okay, where can we go look for examples of this and, and how can we get inspiration to bring it into their design? And they went to a formula one pit stop because what do they have cars? What needs to happen? The car needs to come in and out with a specific action happening in a very short amount of time. And they said, Let's take what we can learn from that situation and transplant it into our own industry. So had it ever been done before? Well, yeah, it had. But had it ever been done before in that way in the fast food industry? No. So that's an example of a new new idea. So a great idea, I'll I'll be honest, it's a little bit more subjective. You know, what I think is a great idea may be different for both of you two. But if you think of a great idea as one of those that kind of raises the hair in your arms or like gives you goosebumps on the back of your neck. It's it's exciting. It it drives emotion. And in a way, it makes you feel jealous that you didn't come up with it. A little bit of idea envy. So that's new and great. But even if you had one of those by themselves or even those two together, I still don't consider it an innovative idea, because what we need to have happen at the end of the day is have a bottom line business impact. And that's where reliable comes into play is your new and great idea something that has a bottom line impact and you can have an idea that has a bottom line impact that isn't new or great i mean that could just be cost cutting you know (laughs) we know cost cutting isn't innovative but it's the combination of all three of them that i believe makes an idea innovative and then on top of that is that ability to consistently deliver ideas that have these three characteristics Mm. Over and over and over again is what I see as being truly innovative.
1: Yeah, and and so that's that's where the framework comes in, right? You've you've got this system to to repeat to absolutely, you know, very very much like McDonald's, right? Everything about McDonald's is the repetitive process to make sure the fries are the same all the time and and so on. Yeah,
3: every yeah. place you go. Yeah,
1: yeah, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. We've got a couple of answers that say yes. Um doing that and that's transparency is part of the process um for us. So that's good. We've got a got a couple of people at least that are letting the clients in, getting to peek behind the curtain, paid no attention to the man behind the curtain, apparently. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I do the same thing. I mean, I just I don't do anything that's all that like groundbreaking. It's just um, you know, working with old houses. So it's it's not creating a new building typology or anything like that. But if I tell my clients how I came to this conclusion or what I thought and the different components that went into my idea, then they can take those same components, and maybe come up with a different idea. That's the way I look at it. Cause we're all, you know, they might yeah. as well use the raw materials or the parameters that I'm using, you know? Yeah.
3: And, and sometimes the innovative idea isn't in the design itself, but maybe it's how you get the work done there. Um, I, when I was doing research, I researched a, a company in Atlanta. And they had an innovation group, and they set aside a week every six months for the entire company to be involved in innovation for how the company delivered the software that it did. But because they brought everybody together, there were people who you don't normally think of as the innovators in an organization who became part of this mindset. And there was a woman in their um, accounting department who took this inspiration idea and looked at her work and said, you know, I'm spending 40 manual hours every month, so a week every month, running a report. And so she took what she learned from the IT team and applied it and actually learned a programming language, wrote the program, and took this 40-hour process into about 12 minutes. I find that highly innovative. And, and then now she's able to come to work and do work that makes her happier, less soul sucking, you know, less of a grind. And inspires other people to look for those little pockets where you can be innovative. So it's not always about the actual building design process itself, but it could be about how you do the work. And and I see Manuel's um, idea about potential liability. And we can walk through the the process if you'd like, Jeff and Catherine. Yeah, let's do that. But one one of the aspects isn't to copy and paste something from another industry, but to use it and pick it apart and understand why it works and relate the pieces that matter to your own situation into your work.
1: So let's let's go ahead and, and walk through the process. There are, there are uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, five steps. That's five right. steps, that's yep. right. So where, where do we start? Do we start in the coffee shop?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's where I started. That's where I started. So I'll, I'll share, the, share the five steps, and then I'll walk through them. Um, the first step is to observe the world around you distill what you observed into patterns, relate the patterns into your work, then you start to generate ideas, and then you pitch them. So typically, what happens is when we need something, you know, it could be a design, it could be a new marketing strategy, it could just be, I got to figure out how to do more with less. I think it was um, Chris, maybe, or or Manuel, who said, needed to learn how to multitask or or be two people. yeah, 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 yeah. When we're looking for those kind of things, we we say, okay, let me just do a brain dump. Let me do a brainstorm. Let me just, you know, figure out what I know. And what I saw in my research is that when people and teams and organizations start just by going from, trying to go from zero to a hundred of here's our problem. Now we need ideas to solve it. Nothing has fueled that. They They haven't created a way to bring in inspiration from other things that have happened. And so even if somebody does have an, an example of how it's worked differently that might relate into the work because other people don't understand it, it tends to shut those ideas down. And we see this in groups. We even see it in our own brains, you know? Yes, I had this idea, oh, that would never work. Yeah, but I think it might, you know, and you have the devil and the angel on your, on your shoulders even for ideas. And so what I saw is that highly innovative people were highly, highly observant people looking at all the little details. So that's where this process started. And in the book, I started just in some place as simple and accessible as a coffee shop. And it (laughs) it was a place that I went, you know, I love to go sit in a coffee shop and It's something about the background noise that I don't actually have to pay attention to kind of like in an airport really works for my brain and I'm pretty productive. So I went to a coffee shop and I just sat for about a half an hour and I wrote down everything that I observed, everything that I saw, which is our first um, sense that we tend to rely on everything I heard, smelled, tasted, touched. And the list that's in the book is actually only a fraction of the list of, of things that I came up
2: with. It's a pretty vivid description, I have to say, with the poopy diaper and the guy chewing his nails and the where did the crumb come from? And <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot. I really, anyway, made it come alive, your description, your, anyway. Yeah, if what? you want to read a few more, do you
3: have it handy, Catherine?
2: No, I listen to it. Oh, you so, listen to it?
3: Okay, I do. I actually happen to have the book hand, handy here. So, so I'll read a few of these things and see if it comes alive. Smell of coffee, hard floor, skid-free rug. Man chewing his fingernails, woman on the phone, man texting, people's names on cups, stir, sugar, napkin station, woman reading, burnt coffee smell, baby crying, floral perfume, poopy diaper. Yeah. You, you know, the feeling of the grains of, sh- you know, sugar on the table, um, mm-hmm. community flyers, cold breeze from the open door, employee uniforms. So I sat there and consciously went through all five senses. You know, there's so much that we do every day. I mean, here I am. I'm talking on a screen, and what do I have within arm's reach? Another screen. And I think because we need to get so much done every day, it makes us blind to inspiration that's right in front of us. And that's why when I when I do the workshops and have people go through this process, I tell them, you have to put your phone down. It's only 30 minutes. You might break out in a sweat, but you know, if the if the world stops spinning, we'll let you know. Yeah. But we, <laughs> we don't take enough. time to do that. Yeah. And especially if we make time to do it on a regular basis, we see how much around us there is to pay attention to. Yep. And that's where all of these opportunities, you know, I call them the dots. Like that's how you collect dots that you eventually connect to come up with the ideas. Every
1: morning I host what we call our morning mindset conversation. And we, we focus we do something to focus on growth mindset and how we can prepare our day and things like that. We talk, you can imagine in a context like that, we talk a lot about practices, right? It could be a practice of gratitude. could be a practice of whatever. And as I was listening to this, I also listened to books. If, as I was listening to this part of the book, this, this, uh, this step in, in the, uh, process, that's exactly how it struck me as this, this becomes a practice. And I know you've talked about, Hey, if you do this for seven days or whatever it is, um, you know, 30 minutes for seven days or something, you know, when, when you're talking about that, I'm going, this is another practice. This is something that we can do to, uh, and it's, and it's all going to come back to mindfulness, right? And that's, that's what we talk about every morning. And and that was, that was a nice correlation for me as I, I host all of these, uh, these conversations in the morning but it really struck me that yeah we're, we have to be intentional to start out this process be intentional about being uh innovative and and observant i guess in this
3: and observant and that that whole idea about intention and mindfulness is so yeah. important and i i tell the story about when our three kids were little in elementary school there was a bike to work day or bike mm. to school day and i yeah. said to the kids awesome let's bike to school so I got them, you know, it's like, you got your backpack, you got your lunchbox, you know, do you have all the things? We get on our bikes, and it's, you know, a mile-ish, maybe a mile and a half, easy ride from where I live to their school. And we head down the street and we cross over the street that should have done this nice little curve and been across the street from the school. But what I didn't, it I turned on that street and it was Jeff and Catherine like a place I had never been before on the moon. I was so lost and I'm thinking I like I've lived here how can none of this look familiar and it turns out I had turned an intersection too early hmm. but I actually turned onto a route that I had run no less than 3 times a week for 10 years yeah but because when I run I've got earphones in I'm thinking about a million different things all these little details I was completely blind to and and along the way, I mean, I saw I saw it with eyes like I'd never seen it before, and, and it was amazing. It was beautiful, but it's just an example of how we go through our regular routine every single day and miss so much.
1: And, and the perception and the context changes, or even, even the context between running and biking. The earbuds, Absolutely. and probably not with the with the kids on the bikes. Yeah.
3: Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And then and then from there, we take all of those things that we've observed, and then we distill them into patterns. And there's no rhyme or reason to what the pattern is. You know, it could be loud things. It could be yellow things. It could be tall things. It could be communication, things. It could be people. Yeah, gross things. exactly, exactly. And the interesting thing is that as I did this research about how this all works, I came across a lot of information from neuroscience that showed that our brain actually naturally functions in these first three steps, and I know this is just step two, but if you think about our survival, it was all based on yeah. observing the world around us and distilling that into patterns, patterns generally being, is it safe or is it unsafe? So these first two steps really have been with us genetically just as a matter of survival, but we've trained them to go below the surface because of all the distractions we have in the world around us, primarily with technology or with schedules that are too full, that we don't take the time to do this and pay attention.
2: I have one little just a side question. What do you, I can't, I'm trying to think of what we did before we had phones, which wasn't that long ago. I was fully (laughs) at, I was a fully grown adult when I first got my (laughs) phone. So did we have books with us or were we always observing things? I can't remember.
3: <laughs> well, there there were big uh card catalogs in the library. I can tell you that. But is you no know that I was... remember those. I watched I watched a movie the other day, Legal Eagles from I think it, it oh, said really? it came out in 1986. Yeah. With oh, wow. Robert Redford and Daryl Hannah and Deborah Winger. And I'm watching this and I said to my husband, it's so stressful because there's no cell phones, there's no internet, there's no like everything was so late, full of labor and, you know, Mm. lag time in communication and, and things. Yeah. Yeah. It's true.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I mostly read or I wrote or I drew, so I don't think I was paying attention anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I I read, I read a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, all right. Sorry. Just wondering. So those are the first two steps. And then the third
3: step, this is really where we bridge the gap between, you know, observe and distill can kind of be theoretical. You're not necessarily applying to anything specific there. And so, this third step, relate, is the bridge between this theoretical world of what you're observing and distilling and the real world of I have work to get done and I have things that need ideas. You know, I have uh, designs to create, I have clients to keep happy, I have employees to hire. How can I be more innovative about that? And so, relate is really about taking these patterns that you've seen and ask yourself, how might we? Think of what we need to accomplish from this point of view. How might we think about this in terms of people? How might we think about this in terms of, you know, showing up taller in the world? How might we think about this in, you know, whatever the, you know, in gross things. Like that's one of the examples in, in the book, you know, you know, how, how, how might we be showing up in awful ways that we don't even realize yeah. little things like that. And so that's where the brain starts to, the brain will answer the question you ask it. So if we want better ideas, we have to ask better questions. Going into the fourth step, which is the generate. So essentially after you've gone through what you've observed and distilled it into patterns, now you've related those patterns into your work by asking, you know, how might we show up like this? Then the generate step starts by simply answering those questions. But answering them, if you think of a mind map or you know a tree yeah. limb where it keeps branching out and out and out, is that you have this new opportunity to come up with ideas that you wouldn't because of how you previously went into the brainstorm or the strategy session. Now you've fueled it in a way that one, your your mind is warmed up and thinking differently, and now you're thinking very expansive. You're thinking, you know, fully of opportunity. And one thing that we didn't talk about is um, how to set an objective statement in. If we have time, we can go through that, but it's at the end end of, as you go through all of the ideas you can come up with, then you start to cull them down. But many times people say, you know, we've got three, four, five, 10 ideas, you know, sounds pretty good. And a couple that are really strong research shows you don't start to get to the really creative ideas until you've gotten to 200 ideas. And the only way you get to 200 ideas is to practice and to push and push each other or push yourself if you're doing this by yourself. And when you start thinking about two hundred ideas, then you have a lot of really rich material to work with.
1: Yeah, I think about how so many of in our in our audience are probably designing. You know, they may be thinking about this in a different way. They may be sketching, probably sketching ideas. But I know that they're iterating through a lot of different sketches, a lot of different ideas. Two hundred? I don't know, but I'm I'm sure they're they're burning through a lot of ideas. Catherine, do you ever go through? 200 sketches or 200 ideas as you're designing anything
2: i mean probably if it's a hard if it's a hard problem i usually try to sometimes i try to list out the really bad ideas i try to come up with the worst idea i possibly Mm -hmm. can and then um then there's usually something in that or i realize that these are constraints so i don't know 200 i have never actually um measured but i bet i could if i had to yeah i mean they're not gonna be good ideas
1: Yeah, yeah. Speaking of constraints, that's part of the statement that you were just talking about, right, Carla?
3: Exactly, exactly. And it's uh, when I do workshops, that's one of the things that I have people do when I challenge them with their ideas is let's start with the worst idea first, because there can be a lot of pressure. I mean, even though this is a process and you're supposed to come up with a lot of ideas, it's kind of like unspoken that if you have a lot of ideas, not all of them are going to be good. But yeah. to really celebrate, you're, you have to go through some bad crap to get to the really good, rich stuff. You know, so by by just calling it out and saying, you know, give me the worst that you can possibly come up with. And it's funny, all of a sudden, some people who are kind of like, you know, buttoned up and, you know, don't like to not look like they always know the answer, come up with some really hilarious things and it loosens people up. And there's there's a direct correlation between humor and laughter and creativity. So when you do that, then, you know, your brain comes up with a little bit more connection, a little bit more practice and and things like that. But it's that idea of, of sketching them out, you know, um, if you think about bumwad, I don't know if anybody still uses bumwad, but, you know, you do a sketch and then maybe you do another one and you just change a little piece of it. You change a little piece of it. The same works for an idea. It doesn't mean you have to have 200 absolutely completely different ideas. You know, it's it's the little course, you know, detail that you uh, that you get creative, or that's where you add the variety in, and and things like that that can help you get to those ideas.
1: Yeah, bu- <laughs> so I'm going to go back to bumwad for a minute because <laughs> I've used that.
2: sketches. <laughs> I've
1: I've used that term before, and and I don't think many people in the community. Yeah. I don't know if that's like a Midwestern thing, but bumwad. You yeah, you said that once. And I trash thought, hmm, paper trace. Trash paper. You know, yeah, whatever. I just call
2: it trace. Yeah. Trace
1: paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, you call
2: it Catherine? Trace paper. Yeah, we just called it trace. Just trace. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: We used to call it bum one. So right.
2: Well you and I are in the same camp, Jeff.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So so the 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 uh I forget what you call the statement, but it's we we need ideas.
3: Yeah, the the objective statement. So at the end, when, when we go to pitch this idea, ideally it's pitched toward a specific outcome or situation that we're looking to address or problem we're wanting to solve. So the objective statement has three parts. The first part is we need new ideas to And that's generally like, what's the thing you have right in front of you? And then the second part is a little bit more, takes a little bit more brain noodling than it may appear at first. It's so we can. What's the ultimate outcome that you want from? And that makes people think more than they may realize. Because I think the immediate need is an obvious one. But beyond that, you know, we need new ideas. Um, for how to bring in new customers so we can well is it only revenue is it better customers so we can recruit a different kind of talent or you know is it more cust- more clients so that they're higher paying or revenue or you know so you have fewer clients but more revenue and ideally less time committed you know being very specific about the so we can makes a difference because this is a statement that After you've gone through your 200 ideas that you've come up with, you're going to use to filter those ideas and see, do they apply to what I need to have done? And then the third part of the objective statement is with these constraints and common constraints are, you know, budget and time. It could be something specific to what's going on in your client's industry or in the market in general or your firm or, you know, whatever those are. I suggest using two to four of those because I think if you have too many constraints and that shuts everything down. And we really are trying to at least move the needle little by little by little. And if you have fewer than two, I think there's too much of an too much of a chance that your idea won't live in the real world. Because a lot of ideas are great ideas until they have to actually be executed. Yeah. And so that's really important. And then when you get to that fifth fifth step, which is pitching the idea. It's really important because, as part of that pitch, what you do is you go back to the beginning and you tell the story of what did you observe, what were those patterns, how does that relate into your work, how did that inspire your idea, and now how does that fit into the world of the objective statement? So it's theory and inspiration and potential married into reality with bottom line impact with what you're looking to do.
1: One one of my big takeaways from this and and. I, I think, you know, this is, this is me wondering if, if I'm in my own bubble, you know, et cetera. But I, I think that many of us, when we're pitching the ideas or we're sharing the good ideas, we leave that context out. We leave that storytelling uh, out, you know, that makes that, that strong connection. Uh, and I think in the book you talk about, you need to give them enough, right, that, that they can imagine, but not so much that, it, that it's rigid. I forget exactly how.
2: Yeah,
3: like give, give them structure and context. And then let them fill in the details of of what it looks like. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a balance, give them, give them enough to get them excited about what you have going on, but not so much that your image disagrees with, with that image. And I remember that Jeff so clearly from an interview that the firm, one of the firms I worked for did, it was for the city of Omaha and they said we really need to show what this is going to look like because it was a new building in a historic part of town and presented to the city planner and, and some other other people. And that was the feedback is that you gave you were too specific of what mm-hmm. about what this looks like. And we feel that you've decided on our behalf what's like. Yeah, yeah. So that's that balance between the inspiration and sharing the story of what could be without it without completing the story on their behalf without them feeling like they're part of that story
1: without saying this is what it is
3: exactly exactly
1: i think there are an awful lot of us that have have gone there before right it's this is our vision you know this you know whether it's whether it's in the form of a of a uh a a rendering or or just the description or whatever i think we've i think we've gone all the way to this is what it is and maybe it's just me you know I'm, i'm always leaving the door open for that maybe it's just me going to this is what it is rather than stopping with this is what it what it could be could
3: be i'd be curious how many other people who are joining us here today if they feel that they have a little bit of a challenge walk, walking that line
1: yeah yeah drop that in the comments if you've uh if you if you think you take the uh the story a little bit too far sometimes put that in the in the comments right now we're very quickly uh, approaching the top of the hour which is just amazing it's been a fun conversation here but we'll, we'll have to wrap it up uh, here momentarily. But I guess one last question, Carla, before we, uh, before we let you go, you, you, know, you know this world, right? You know the, uh, the profession here, the industry here. What's something that the entrepreneur architects that are tuning in right now, what's something that they can do to be more consistently or as you say it, more prolifically creative or more prolifically innovative in their work?
3: I say the simple, most helpful, but underlooked thing that people can do, and you alluded to it a little bit, Jeff, earlier, is I say, I call it the seven minute challenge. And you take seven minutes a day for seven days and you just observe what is it that you're challenging. Look at it from all different directions, write everything down that you can think about it. And you won't necessarily in the first few days solve it or maybe in the first seven days, but you're going to look at it completely different. And I think a lot of times we have these perceived limits on what can be done, especially as small firms and resources. And if you're a one-person firm, you're doing all the things and wearing all the hats. But I think when we look at those things and really examine them and pick them apart, and I am a notebook junkie, like an old school, actual physical notebook junkie, I write everything down like that. It's just 7 minutes for 7 days, so it's less than an hour in a week. And your mind when it gives its given that time and that space will go to work and start to solve this. But at the very least, it will help you understand whatever your challenge is so much better and from a different perspective than I think you ever
2: imagined, and yeah. it's going to be a lot easier to start to address than you believe.
1: Yeah, I love that.
2: We have, a, we have to make up the we have to make the question as well, because what's a question? Give me a good question. It would be hard to come up with a question that you had to spend that much time thinking about. So that's what. I'm Yeah, I mean, it it could be as simple like what. Well, what may be a challenge that you have, Catherine? Oh wow! Well, well, I have a lot. I have a lot of them.
1: Just pick one.
2: Just <laughs> the thing. That's the thing I can't think of. Pick one. Pick one. It's too many. Okay, well, here Man- Manuel put a question in the chat. He said, "Currently, I'm
3: really trying to stop myself from carrying the story too far with the project." I'm experimenting with letting the story develop by itself and observe what the building wants to be. So, for example, and this is a great opportunity to use the question, how might we? So how might we was um, a question that was developed by a gentleman named Min Bassador. He worked at Procter & Gamble back in the 70s, and he understood that there's a dynamic with the language that we use and how Mm -hmm. we solve problems. So how should we implies There's a right or wrong. How can we implies you can or you can't, you know, ability. But how might we? Again, your brain answers the question that it's asked. So in in Manuel's situation, you might ask yourself, how might I let the story unfold and let the building be what it wants to be? So even just using something as simple as the how might we statement and just sitting for seven minutes and just just write down what comes into your brain. Yeah. And doing that every single day for seven days, your brain's going to pick up where it left off the day before. And it gets fascinating with all these things that it is kind of like your hard drive on your computer. It's going in the back of your mind between each 24 hour period when you sit down for seven minutes. And I think you'll find some really interesting answers and and opportunities and perspectives that you would struggle to if you just sat down for an hour and said, how do I solve this?
1: Just a word of warning for everybody that's Planning to join me tomorrow morning for our mindset conversation. We're probably going to use this, probably going to talk about the seven minute challenge uh, in the morning as as a a practice to develop. So uh, just a heads up. One last question here, Catherine.
2: Pam says, how might you come back to finish the discussion on another day? It went too fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Ben. I always feel the same
3: way. And I know Jeff and Catherine, we've talked before. The time just goes fast. And I, I mean, I get excited and wound up about it because it's, it's the work I love to do. So yeah. I, I love
2: talking about it. Thank well, you. I have an idea of how you might come back again. Is that we're having our um, we're having our book club discussion tomorrow? About your, if you wanted to, you're welcome to come.
1: Come back tomorrow if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I'll be curious to hear people's feedback about the book tomorrow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it would, we'll 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 talk about that if you'd like to. We'd be happy to have you. But until then, thank you very much for this conversation. It's is enlightening. Um, again, I think, you know, what's really unique about your book is the structure that you bring to it and the the framework that you bring to being innovative. So uh, thank you for the book. Thank you for this conversation. And um, thanks for joining us today. The innovation archetype. It's the assessment, right?
3: Yeah, it's, it's an assessment where you can, everybody comes up with ideas differently. And even though we have these images of what an innovator or creative person looks like, I found that there's different styles. So if you go to this link, you can take the assessment. It's it's free and um, you can find out your style. And then it also tells you how you interact with the other styles when it comes to ideas. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. You should check it out. So carlajohnson.co slash innovation archetype is the, uh, in case you're listening to this and don't have a, a visual, carlajohnson.co slash innovation archetype. Check that out. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use, maybe in your practice or even in your life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, every week in the Entree Architect Network, I host the Context and Clarity Classroom. It's our weekly opportunity to take what we've learned from our special guests and put those lessons into action in your life and in your work. Find the Context and Clarity Classroom exclusively inside the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you are so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to YouTube. Find the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Your likes and your ratings and your shares all help us help other entrepreneur architects like you. And together, they help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of context and clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice.